I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. It's the Thursday podcast. How are you doing? Hope you're doing okay. Hope all is going well. Hope you're not as demented as the man beside me. How are you, Mr. D? I'm very good. You demented? I am totally and utterly demented. But do you know what, actually? What I really like and what I've noticed, JM was feeding us some figures on our listenership and stuff. Well, I really like... Your mother and my mother. <laughs> yeah. My, my mother. I don't understand that stuff at all. But carry on. <laughs> but I'm delighted to see that a lot of our listeners are in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, no, and I think no, it no is, but in their 20s, we have lots of listeners in our 20s. Yeah, yeah. And, and Maggie always says, Maggie's my eldest daughter, Maggie always says that a lot of her mates, because she's doing economics at the moment, but then I got a text from my nephew, Tom, Tom Davis. Oh, I know Tom. Yeah, he's a very good guy. But he was saying, jeez, all his mates are, are listening. Where, where are these lads from? The, these are all the, the leak slip lads. Okay, and they're, the they're, leak slip posse. The leak slip posse. So a big shout out to them. Big up for the leak slip posse. Do you remember, do you remember Black Uru's African children? Yeah. Do you remember that? This is going out for the Notting Hill posse. <laughs> From the Ladbrook Grove posse. <laughs> There's the leaks of posse. Oh, that was you. You used to live there. I did live there. I was part of the Ladbrook Grove posse. It's the white man in the Ladbrook Grove posse, but there you go. Listen, leaks of lads, we'll be out west soon. They're all coming to the show whenever we're doing the show. Whenever we're doing the show. We need Vaccines. to go live. Yeah. We're going to be doubled up. I'm going to get the Sputnik, I've decided. Yeah. There's something, you know, I actually was saying that to... It's, it's Croatia with steroids, isn't well, it? Well, I was saying to Croatian mates about the, the, the Sputnik, because, you know, they announced the Sputnik in the summer. They had the vaccine. Yeah. And it's funny because lots of Brits believe that they hacked the Oxford vaccine. Ooh, but again, there is a, but there then is a again, good conspiracy but theory But that now. goes against the idea that Russia has been producing vaccine for years. So I said to our, you know, loads of Croatian friends, yeah, yeah. I said, you know, got the Russian vaccine this summer. And they said, of course we'd take it. They said, every single vaccine we ever got in Yugoslavia was produced in Russia. All their vaccines are produced yeah. in Russia. And look at them now, huh? And look at them now, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Anyway... When we're all vaccined up, we will be back live. Excellent. I'm looking forward to live shows. I'll be terrified as always, but I'm looking forward to them. Just get two vaccines on the way in. You'll be fine. <laughs> A vaccine for fear, nerves, anxiety, <laughs> performance, the stage, stage fright, everything. We'll be fine. Let's talk about America. Yes. I mean, this week, 
was huge week in American. You, you see, the thing is that now that Trump is gone, which I'm devastated. I know, by, you poor thing. But just wait, he's jailed. Well, hopefully so. But Biden seems to be doing a good job. But he is bringing in this 1.9 trillion relief package. Yeah, it's huge. It's enormous. What is that going to do? Because there's a lot of people concerned about this, obviously for inflation and what it will do to the dollar and all the rest. Talk us through Well, I'll tell you what we should do. Why don't we go to the States and talk to an economist who worked for years in the Federal Reserve? Yeah. Get her view of what's going on. And not only, she's she's not only any old economist now, she's an economist with a rule named after her. Oh. Because Claudia Sam worries a lot about which most economists should do, unemployment, recessions, depressions, what you do to get out of it. Her whole idea is try and do as much now to avoid what might happen in the future. That seems a a bit sensible. It seems very sensible, very (laughs) uneconomic. So let's go to the States. Let's talk to Claudia about what she thinks is going on. I want to talk to her about, number one, her rule about unemployment and how they see recessions in the States and how to predict them. Mm. But the second thing I want to talk to her about is what she makes of this Biden package, and touching on your issue there, what about the inflationary risk? Yeah. Is it going to come true? So let's go to the States, talk to Claudia, and then let's come back and digest it all. Claudia, how are you? You're in the States early morning, I see. Yeah, doing really well this morning. So thanks again for having me on. Not at all. It's a, it's a complete pleasure. Now tell me about the SAM rule, okay? The idea that you have a, came up with a rule that predicts recessions. Tell me what it is. Yeah, well, I think the context for it, too, I was working on a policy proposal to have ways to automatically fight recessions. So this was back in 2019. The the proposal came out. And mine specifically was send checks to everybody as soon as we know we're in a recession. So that was the core of it. That's what I've studied is, you know, sending money to people in recessions. But, you know, to have it be automatic, I got to have, you know, some way to tell the government, okay, now send out those hundreds of billions of dollars and it would be good if it were accurate, right? So I went back and the rule itself is you look at the unemployment rate, the national unemployment rate. And frankly, that's why we hate recessions as people lose their jobs. There's all kinds of disruption in their family. And the unemployment rate is really simple to understand and every. People watch this number. So what I do is I take the national unemployment rate and take a three-month average, right? Because we just don't want to overreact and, again, send out hundreds of billions of dollars because of some little blip in the data. So you take the three-month average, and I compare that most recent reading to the low over the past 12 months. And if there has been an increase of just a half a percentage point, we are in a recession, we're, we're, you know, two to three months into a recession. This is highly reliable, right? We go back since the 1970s. Every single time it turns on, we're in a recession. I can go back to the 1940s. It's extremely reliable. So, and that's a really small increase that being a couple months into a recession is months and months and sometimes a full year before the official announcement of a recession happens we don't want to wait a year to send out checks. It's much better to do it early on. And so in my paper, it was really kind of a sidebar. It was like, I need a recession indicator to send out the checks. It ended up being widely followed 
I did not call it the psalm roll that was given to it. And it's always better if somebody like, else gives it's always better if somebody else gives you the rule, you know. Can you know, yeah, yeah well, exactly? Yeah, and I even kind of fought it a little bit. The first event where they sprung it on me, I was like, what is happening? Who did this? Um, and then I knew the organizers of the the policy volume. And afterwards I talked to Christy Romer. She was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under Pre President Obama right at the start of his presidency. So when they were fighting the Great Recession and I told Christy, I was like, I, I'm really uncomfortable with this, you know, Psalm rule thing. And she looked at me and she said, Claudia, any man would totally own this. You should too. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I love Christy. I will listen to Christy. And you know, now it's in databases and I've worked with members of Congress and their staff. I mean, it's in legislative text proposals. Like I would, it would just blow my mind to see something like that, but I'm really happy. Like I, you know, left the Fed at the end of 2019 to work on fiscal policy, better ways to fight recessions. Unfortunately, it became very topical when we fell into the, the COVID recession. But so, I mean, I'm excited that I get to push this along. No, no, it's, it's, I mean, it, for me makes great sense is that economics tends to overcomplicate and this is undercomplicating. This is saying, hold on a second. If the rate of unemployment over the last three months is rising quicker than we expected, we're in a recession. Right? It's very simple. Is you know, we've got the data, it's timely. And as you say, it can actually be useful in terms of actually triggering policy, which is fantastic. I also want to talk to you about the boys' club and the fact that if it was a male economist, <laughs> they would have they would have said, "That's mine." They'd have been they'd have been out doctoring their own Wikipedia page at this stage. <laughs> but <Yep. laughs> now, tell me about America right now, because Irish people, first of all, America is obviously the biggest economy in the world. Yada yada yada. But we've also got this kind of special mm -hmm. relationship because we're very very close to the states. Many people argue that Ireland can sometimes be. It's kind of like Connecticut with shitty weather <laughs> because we're so close. Yeah. Tell me, so Joe Biden, as of this week, is trying to unveil or is unveiling this new big stimulus package. Tell me about it. Yeah, it's it, it's been in the making. So once he took president, and we knew this was coming, he wanted a large relief package. So the United States remains in crisis. Like we are not in last March and April at that point, the United States lost 20 million jobs within months. Right? Wow. We had unemployment claims rise millions by a week, weeks. I mean, it was incomprehensible, the disruption. And there was a lot of fear, just, I mean, COVID on its own, which has, the, the pandemic has driven everything that we have seen, whether it's societal disruptions, schools closing, and people not having jobs, right? So COVID is control. We are finally, hopefully, getting this more under control with the vaccines. But what we've, we are not out of the woods. We remain 10 million jobs short of where we were in February, the United States had three and a half percent unemployment rate in February of 2020. That was the best labor market that we had seen in decades. And even in that labor market, there were people who were marginalized and in low wage jobs. So it was by no means perfect, but we'd really made some progress finally after the Great Recession. And it all fell apart with breathtaking uh, speed. And what we've seen 
the relief really ended, well, I should say in March, the Congress came together of last year and they passed over a $2 trillion relief package, the CARES Act. This was amazing. I did not sleep until it passed the Senate, like the two weeks it was down at the end. Um, and I had been advising members of the, the House of Representatives, talking with Pelosi's office. And I mean, it was really, really good. I, I was worried some Republicans in the Senate were going to wake up and be like, whoa, and <laughs> this is too generous, especially what they were doing for the unemployed. But it went through. It helped. We A lot of those 10 million jobs we made up happened in the months after the CARES Act passed. I mean, it wasn't the only factor, but it certainly helped. Most of that relief ended or it was really petering out it, in the summer, Congress didn't renew it. It took all the way until December for them to put out another package. And this was after COVID had spiked. We had seen the job gains plateau and even start to you know, backtrack some uh, in the winter. So it was pretty clear, I think, that it was time to do more. Biden proposed another almost $2 trillion package. And it is very much relief. It's $1,400 checks to people. It's extending the extra jobless benefits through late into the summer, early fall. So that has been in discussion really the last month. And I woke up this morning to the news and it's like this package is, you know, really popular with the American people and the Republicans can't figure out a way to short circuit it. So this is a huge amount of money. I mean, this is a huge, it looks to me like almost that, you know, Joe Biden is deploying the economics of the 1930s in order to avoid the 1930s. Yeah, no, I think this is, you see the Democrats in Congress and the White House, as well as the Federal Reserve having learned from the lessons of Great Recession when we didn't do enough in the recovery. And an even you know, more poignant example is going back to the Great Depression, right? When I talk about those 10 million jobs we're still missing, that is a larger shortfall than at any point within the Great Recession over 10 years ago. Like what we are seeing even now, like let alone the depths of this COVID crisis, is unparalleled. Like in living memory, we have never seen this. In the Great Depression, that's probably the only other time the contractions were worse. And it's like, we are not doing that again. And I think what, you know, Congress stepped in right at the beginning, right? And the Fed stepped in right in the beginning in March. But a big lesson from the Great Recession was Congress stepped away too soon. And that yes. I can see as the lesson but they got to follow through. And then what's interesting with Biden is last summer when he was in spring, when it was clear he was going to be the candidate, his slogan has been build back better. And the idea of that is largely, we don't want to just get to February of 2020 because there was a lot of inequality. There were a lot of problems. We want to do better. And so really this relief package is a little bit of a detour right? Like I don't, they weren't really pointing at this until COVID came back with a vengeance in the winter and the disruption. We just hadn't made a lot of progress in, like there's still a lot of families struggling in the United States and small businesses. And so you got to build on a strong foundation. And right now the foundation is not strong. So there's a relief package going through and I fully expect, and they've talked about this, 
there is another two to four trillion dollar infrastructure package and infrastructure here, not just building roads and bridges, but investing in people. And that really, that that's the new deal, right? That's fighting the Great Recession. Unfortunately, they waited. You know, it, it wasn't until FDR took office, but then there were a whole series of programs within FDR's presidency, which was an unusually long one, that built the social safety net in the United States. That's when we got unemployment insurance, when we got social security, um, there were jobs programs. So it's not clear yet what's going to be in the infrastructure package, but even moderate Democrats, I mean, two to four trillion. That's a lot of money. This is, this but is, I, I truly believe it's well spent. This is a huge amount of money because it looks like, you know, the United States is going to look and feel very, very different from the United States of the last yeah. 20 years. I mean, this is a, this is a monumental shift in government yeah. thinking in the United States. How deep do you think it's going? And what do you think the states will look like in five or six years if this all goes through? Yeah, when I will say to put it in context, the United States has a $20 trillion economy. So it is, it's a substantial amount of our GDP. Again, in living memory, we have not seen anything like this in terms of federal government spending. We're already in a place where the federal government debt is on par with GDP. And if they just put out the policies they have on the books, it'll go above it. So then you add another $6 trillion to it. I mean, we are moving into a space that even a decade ago, economists would tell us was a danger zone, right? Like inflation will heat up and we'll see bad things happen. But like they were saying, oh, if it gets to 0.8 of GDP, everything like breaks down, we're going to push to like probably double that. So, um, you know, we're moving into territory that would have been incomprehensible even 10 years ago. And you can imagine that some people, especially more senior policymakers and economists who lived through the 1970s when there was a lot of inflation, have really tried to put the brakes on this, um, which keeps me very busy. Well, I know because <laughs> like, I know you argue. I know you're fighting yeah. very much. I mean, I'll explain this to, to listeners. You're within the economics world. There are all sorts of schisms. I've always thought economics is like an orthodoxy, right? It's like a religion. Yeah, and, yeah. and religions are full of fashion, you know? It's like fashion as well. Mm-hmm. And within economics, there's the orthodoxy, and then there's there's new sort of heretics, and then there's Martin Luther-type characters, and then there's reformations. <laughs> there's all good shit goes on, you know? Then you've got popes. Some popes yeah. are some popes are kind of conservative. Yeah, yeah. Some popes are liberal, blah, blah, blah. Economics is the same thing, okay? And I've always thought mm-hmm. this, and this is why when you came across my radar over here in Ireland, I thought, aha, now here we have excellent, excellent, somebody who's standing <laughs> up and claiming heresy against the orthodoxy and saying, do you know what? Don't worry about inflation. We've got other stuff to look mm-hmm. after. Frankly, let's change tack. Tell me, because I'm, you know, when I'm reading, when I'm reading financial market stuff, whatever, there's always these, the, the resurrection by called the bond vigilantes who were clearly, who are clearly now dead in the water. But there's all this fear that inflation is coming down the, the track. And I think you put your finger on it. People who came of age in the 1970s, when I worked in the central bank in Dublin, right? They're all the economists, mm-hmm. the older males in the gray suits were shit scared about inflation because their collective experience was in an inflationary period. So your own worldview is a fundamental product, all of us, everybody listening, of our experiences as a person. If you live through inflation, 
or let's say if you talk to a Venezuelan or an Argentinian, they'll say, I'm worried about inflation because I know what it's like when money goes pear-shaped. But if you don't live through it, as in our generation hasn't lived through it, it seems a fear that's overblown. Why do you think it's still there, this fear of inflation? Yeah, I mean, really a lot of it is lived experience. That The 1970s were an extremely painful period. And what Paul Vogel and the Fed felt they needed to do, which, I mean, the extent that they pushed it is open to debate, but what they felt they needed to do in terms of raising interest rates, pushing the U.S. economy into a recession to get inflation under control, that was a very painful episode in the United States. I know from having worked with a lot of household survey data, people do not like inflation when it becomes of a substantial amount because it eats away your paycheck often before you can't use it. And yet in those same surveys, the things that households are most afraid of, most hate when they happen, is not having a job when you want a job. So unemployment is, I mean, and it makes a lot of sense. In the United States, most families do not have a cushion. They depend on their paycheck. That is true up through the upper middle class often. So my argument is more... I think we need to balance the risk, right? You know, this idea that, oh, if we do too much right now, we risk inflation. And, you know, I'll recognize this. And I've engaged and continue to engage with some of the high priests to your uh, analogy of religion who are just like, it's going to, we're going to break it down. It's going to come. But to me, the risk of doing too little is so damaging. And the context for me, like I was born in the 1970s, right? So I know from my family that owned a farm, like that was a very disruptive period. They almost lost the family farm. So I, you know, I take that risk seriously, but I started at the Federal Reserve as an economist after finishing my PhD in the summer of 2007. I was an expert on consumer spending. Yeah, it was, oh, my first year. Um, My first forecast was January of 2008. That's when we put the tax rebates of 2008 in the forecast. My second forecast in March was when our division director put the recession call in. And, there you go. It's a baptism you know, of fire. But what was the hardest part for me was into 2010, 2011, when it was clear that we were not coming out of this quickly. And there was so much damage among households, people who had lost their homes, people who couldn't get access to credit, students that had taken on all this debt for their education and couldn't get jobs that like, you know, help pay for it. Uh, So I watched all of this and as a staff economist, like I've been annoying to the older people for a while. Um, I would come into the forecast and at the beginning, everybody gets to put out, even the most junior economists, what they think the forecast should be. Like every six weeks, we kind of start with that process. And I would bring in time after time an argument that our forecast was too strong, that consumption wasn't coming back at the pace. And like every, I'd do it one way, I'd make the charts the other way. And I would, like, I was so frustrated by, you know, 2010 that a senior economist, a really good, good soul, uh, pulled me aside and because he could tell I was frustrated. And he said, Claudia, I have never seen a staff member move the forecast more than you have. Because he said, you don't get what you come in and ask for, like the the cuts, but he said, you get a quarter point. And then you come back again and you ask for a half a percentage point 
and you get a quarter point like off of GDP yeah, growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, if he's like, if you add that up, he's like over the last year. And I was so thankful he pointed that out because I'm just not a patient person um, when it comes to like mass suffering is happening. And, you know, we really did eventually move and, and really pass some of my greatest fears, but it took us years and that meant the Federal Reserve, the officials that we were informing about the situation, they didn't do enough either. And then, I mean, Congress was a complete disaster in terms of doing less spending than they did in any recession, you know, commensurate with the, you know, the degree of the recession. And then they started what was referred to as austerity, where they, you know, pulled it in sure, reverse. Sure, they reversed the whole thing. So, yeah, so for me, oh, and when I was bringing these forecasts, at some point, one of the senior economists, a really smart guy, like looked at me and he's like, Claudia, we always recover from a recession. And I look back at him and I'm like, sir, I understand that. But like, remember, this is my first recession <laughs> and I, I want to believe you, but I haven't seen it yet. So for me, it's not that I don't understand and appreciate the harm that inflation, particularly when you get, you know, three, four or 5% inflation but I understand, I think, in a more like vivid way, the cost of doing too little. And frankly, for decades, policymakers have reacted much more strongly to that fear of inflation than the fear of sure than the fear of unemployment. Hurt. Yeah. So, I mean, I come out now and I'm like, hey, let's just swing for the fences for the people just once. Can we try this? <laughs> so I, I've, you know, uh, encountered a lot of pushback, particularly in the style that I, you know, come in to argue. But, you know, I've also gotten a platform like being here today. This is where I want to go, because I, 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 I am framing this as, as a sort of a heretic versus the orthodoxy idea. Mm -hmm. Last year you wrote a blog and I found it fascinating mm -hmm. because it was saying what I've always thought about or I've observed about a lot of economics, that it's mm -hmm. very male, very, very white and very, very sensitive to any criticism from within. From without, you can circle the wagons and say, well, they, those, those people just don't understand how complex the world is, right? We're the anointed priests and we understand. And, you know, it's like in the medieval times, you know, the priests here, not even the medieval times, before 1950s, spoke Latin at mass to the punters, right? <laughs> so the people didn't know, they had no idea what was going on, right? It was in a different language. What mm -hmm. the priest said is, don't worry, we have a direct line to God. We understand all this stuff. You just take it from me. And I've always thought economics is a bit like this. But you, 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 you wrote your sort of your Lutheran sort of posts on the door, <laughs> and and you and you said economics needs to be changed from within. I one statistic you quoted was in the Fed, how many black economists work at the Fed? One economist out of four hundred and six are black in the in the Fed. That's extraordinary. Tell me what 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 you did and, and what the reaction was. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you want to make the Luther analogy, he wasn't real popular right after he nailed those on the with the Catholic Church. Where this came from, and I mean, the blog post, so I have this blog, it's called Macro Mom. The post is titled Economics is a Disgrace. And that came out of years, at least three years, when economics started to have its Oh, there's no women here. Maybe something happened. You know, like they started to like really begin a baby steps into an introspection. And that's when I started the Macro Mom blog. The 
initial post there, like I try to speak with conviction and put it in plain speak, right? But but over time, you can definitely see my, again, impatience. And there are two things that show up in the beginning of the blog. And then there's a second thing that got to the last point. Um, that the first point is when I was at the Fed, remember I started as we were going into the recession, I wasn't there during the, when the, all the imbalances were brewing in the housing market. And then I just had to deal with the absolute mess that came after. But then when I, and so there's this question about like, how did we miss this? Right. But then in 2010, again, we were missing this in terms of, Oh, we're going to come out of this. It'll be stronger. And I'm like, I just don't see this. So then at that point, I've been at the Fed a little longer. And again, I was looking around and being like, what is wrong with you people? Like, I mean, this is not that hard to see that our models and our assumptions are just like kind of falling on their face. And and I knew that like my colleagues were so dedicated. We were so careful. We brought in models. And frankly, we were more open-minded than a lot of the academic macro profession because we're like, you know, it ain't about being clever here. We got to be right. You know, we are like yeah. giving this to Fed officials, not trying to add to our, you know, CV. And, um, but we were still missing it. And so where I came down on this, and Janet Yellen says this now too, so I'm not, you know, just way out in left field, is that the reason, or at least part of the reason that we kept missing it is we weren't connected enough to what was happening in the real world. Many of us came from if not came from privileged backgrounds, I mean, we had PhDs, right? Like we had a education and, and I mean, frankly, you don't do a PhD if you're like a totally normal person. Um, you know, so we, I, I, we were I, in a place. I, I, I hear you there. No, but it's, this is a very interesting yeah, because it's, the economics profession missed the housing banking boom, right? Which is kind of a joke when you think of the profession that's supposed to be able to predict the future. Number one. Number two, then, as you said, after that, rather than set your hand up and say, Jesus, we missed that. We're going to go back and we're going to have a bit of introspection and we're going to say, why did we miss it, etc." cetera. Uh, none of that carry on. It was like, well, you know, we, you know, let's just move on. But what you got into, you were saying, like, maybe the reason the economics profession is missing the economy and maybe doesn't understand the economy, which is quite a revelation, mm -hmm. is that it is drawn from a very tiny minority of the population, if you were to actually look at the population yeah. in general. And, and it teased that out and a wee bit not, for me. Yeah, and we're the example with out of 406 economists, in when I wrote the blog, there was one. Black economist. In economics. the economics divisions. Black economist, a black woman economist. She retired at the end of this past year. In the underrepresentation, there's fewer, there's like a third of the staff are women. Um, the representation of Hispanics is lower. You know, I mean, you can go on. I mean, there's no Native American PhD economist. And so it's like, you know, some of these people in communities of color are often the most marginalized people and those with less education those from rural areas or inner cities. And, and really like the amount of pain that they felt from the Great Recession was so intense. And, you know, we look at aggregate GDP and we look at, you know, like it just, like I never heard, even after the Fed started to get a little more quote unquote woke, like racism, structural racism, 
Like we didn't say, that was an R word that we didn't say inside the building, right? And that's a problem because that's a feature of the U.S. economy and the Federal Reserve has a maximum employment mandate and a history, which I find very sad that wasn't uh, well known inside the Fed, is the, the full employment, the maximum employment mandate came out of the civil rights movement. The March on Washington, I, I even, in the, even in the title of it, it was for jobs. And after Martin Luther King was assassinated, his widow, Coretta Scott King, carried it on. And she was at the signing of legislation that said the Fed had to come to Congress twice a year and report on its progress toward its dual mandate, you know, containing inflation and um, full employment. The Fed right out of the gate just kind of like brushed it aside and was like, oh, well, if we keep inflation under control, that's the best we can do for unemployment. Like this was not what Martin Luther King was talking about. And I think over time, the Fed has gotten there more, like they still have some ways to go, but they are taking that full employment mandate more seriously. And I mean, frankly, you don't get to the finish line on that unless you bring in the marginalized communities. Absolutely. That's the last bit. So I just, the blog post, I mean, no good deed goes unpunished at the Fed and, you know, having a loud mouth, they'll give you the microphone occasionally. Um, I wrote with a colleague, a memo on groupthink. And, and there were other memos, like trying to really engage with the fact that we are a closed system of thinking and this causes us problems. Now, obviously, like, just because you recognize a problem doesn't mean you solve it. And the Fed has a long way to go, and they're very much a reflection of the academic community. So, like, it's kind of hard to, you know, make a lot of progress. But I think the, my blog post was, like, I just, I got, I got pissed off. Like, I do a lot of mentoring. Once you start being loud and, and they, people notice you care. I mean, I had younger, early career economists, undergrads, grad students, even some more senior economists who are in some of these marginalized groups. I mean, there are black economists, right? Like, uh, you know, they would come to me and I had one week that was a very painful week of students, undergrad, PhD students coming to me. And I finally was like, you know what? I'm tired of helping people guide their process of putting themselves back together again. I think it's time we stop breaking people. So the blog post, which originally was a private letter to Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, and Peter Rousseau, who were leaders in the American Economics Association, was kind of a treatise on like our problems. And I mean, I very much focused on problems at the top of the house, right? And and I hit every protected class, like. I talked about racism, I talked about sexism, I talked about elitism, you know, politics that had gotten into our practice. And um, the thing I did, and I really didn't think anyone would read the blog post, turns out tens of thousands of people have read it now. I named names and I gave examples. And one of the things, I had had the privilege of being inside the temple. I worked for Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke. They knew that like, I'm a good economist and I care. So even if they didn't agree with my tactics, they knew it came from a place where I was, I was trying. I was trying the best I could. I publish academic style research. I presented at the National Bureau of Economics 
and their summer institute, which is a very prestigious invite-only place. These people know me, including the ones who I called out. And what had happened over my career is, like, these things have been said to my face. I like I on my own and most of the blog post is telling my experiences because I am wary to tell other people's experience because many of them came to me in confidence, but like I had the receipts, I had emails. I had, I mean, like at some point you just get so cocky. You don't even, you're not even careful about it. And so every, every person that I call out. So this was like sexism. Like sexism. I mean, for me personally, right. You're not going to, you know, come at me about, like, I, I cannot live a, a person of color experience, but it was not just the sexism. It was the elitism. Don't listen to her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, you know, you don't, you're not publishing research that's going in a top five. I mean, I publish stuff in like the top 10. I think, you know, our listen, ranking of Listen, Claudia, you're on the David McWilliams podcast. You're, you're, you're out of the, you're yeah. out of the park now. <laughs> you're out of the park. Yeah, now. no, and, and, so I got a lot of pushback. And again, because I had mentored so many people and so many people had come to me, like I had people come to me that like, I mean, two minutes in the conversation, I'm like, you need to go see a health professional. Like we can talk about your economics career, but like, no, you are more important and you are not in a good place. I mean, I have helped people, especially a junior, like leave jobs because I'm like, they're, you you will not make it out of this, this environment. Like, they are trying to hurt you. And if you don't leave, they will hurt you, <laughs> right? And then, you know, I spend a lot of time then helping this person find a new job. And But I've seen, and I do a lot of mentoring, a lot in private, a lot of happy stuff too. Because I think it's about our next generation. I mean, I keep pushing and yelling at the old parts, but like, I don't have any particular... <laughs> Uh, hope. I mean, I do believe in redemption. If some of them like turned a corner, I'd be like, use your platform. Yay you. Um, but I'm not holding my breath on that. But I do see a groundswell among the younger economists where they're like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> you know, they sit in classes and a professor will just spout off something racist. Um, you know, so I'm hoping that the next generation doesn't do that. But why I feel there's an urgency is we learn from our elders. Right. Like, and if you want to succeed, sometimes you've got to play the game. And I just think the game we're playing is so, so destructive. Claudia, we will leave it there. That is Claudia Sam. Claudia, give us the blog address again. Yeah. So the blog where I talk about diversity and inclusion is Macro Mom Claudia. And I recently started a Substack to talk about more of these economic issues. Again, that's under my name. And I, if you don't like the fire, I write for the New York Times opinion about the Fed and I write for Bloomberg opinion about inequality. Perfect. So, and if you follow me on Twitter, you'll get a lot of fire. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> so, Listen, Claudia, yes. thank you so much for chatting to us. And now you'll have an Irish audience, which is a new one for you. Yeah, no, I'm very excited. Great stuff. Listen, take cool. care. See you. You too. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you know what, Mark? I was I was thinking uh, as Claudia was talking there that she's talking about you know addressing recessions and stuff. Yeah. You know, if we're doing this now in this recession, what? Well, why didn't we do it in other recessions, particularly two thousand eight? Yeah. Well, it's a really good question. It's because Obama was. Very brilliant in terms of style, mm. but not that brilliant in terms of substance. And I think there's two things going on, right? Obama, for me, the most important thing about Obama was his symbolism, mm. that a black man could be president. That was sufficient. And his rhetoric and his way in which he addressed yeah. the United States. But, but he was also hamstrung by Congress. Yeah, yeah, he was. But, but he was also hamstrung by the people he chose around him. Obama went back to the Clinton economics team, more or less. Yeah. You know, Larry Summers, all these sort of guys. They are men of a certain age who learned economics at a certain time. And I've always thought that economics is like fashion, right? That it changes. It changes with what's going on, right? And I think Obama was still very much caught in the mindset of many Democratic presidents are that basically Wall Street is against us and we can't do this because we have got into power. It's, it's like everything. The Democrats get into power claiming they're going to be fiscally conservative, mm. right? And the conservatives get into power claiming they're going to be fiscally liberal. It's a weird thing, right? <laughs> so Obama gets in and rather than doing what Biden's doing now, yeah. he gets nervous. He pulls back. He doesn't go for the stimulus. He doesn't go for checks in the post for helicopter money, for right. all that stuff that we, we've been talking about for the last year. Yeah. Joe, so he was going for the kind of tried and tested. Tried and tested because he didn't want to. And I think this is his tactic in his head. I mean, I, you know, no idea is this true or not. But Obama thought, I do not want to be a one-term president and I do not want to go down in flames as the first black president who actually gets destroyed by economic delinquency or perception that, you know what happens when you give the keys of the house to someone like that with no adults in the room? They destroy the place. (laughs) No, I really think so. So he was saying in order for him to be a success, a symbolic success for America, 
he had to be conservative in economics. Okay. Which meant two things. One is that far more Americans stayed unemployed for much longer than they needed to be. And number two, because Obama decided to let the Fed do all the heavy lifting, Mm. he said to the Fed, you guys sort this out for me. Bernanke said, okay, I'll do that. I will cut interest rates and I'll print money. Yeah. But I will only print money and give it to the banks. I won't give it to the people. And then by giving it to the banks, the upside of that money was dependent on who the banks lent money to. And the banks lent money to the already rich. Yeah. And the reason they lent money to the already rich is because they were worried about defaults. And they said, well, look, we're going to give it to people with collateral. So what happened was the rich got the cash. Yeah. And as we've said before, they bought all the assets. Yeah. And as asset prices go up, the rich guys got who richer. owned the assets got richer. Yeah. And then Obama decided, well, I'm going to, I'm going to base everything on trickle-down economics. So the rich will get richer. Yeah. And that money will trickle down to the poor and eventually all boats will rise on. But that has been shown not to work. work. And A, 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 it didn't work and B, it led to Trump because it led to inequality. Yeah. And then Trump could say, drain the swamp, I'm your man, look at the elite, even though he was the elite. Yeah. And he gets in. So Biden is thinking, I'm not going to make that mistake. But it's also interesting what Claudia was saying about the economists. The 406 economists and one of them black in the Fed, but that they're all PhDs. And it's this meritocracy thing that we talked about uh, before. Exactly. Look, I, I think that I've always thought, you know, about PhDs, you know, I started one when I was in the central bank years ago. Did you? And then I realised, I don't have time for this. <laughs> I don't have time for it. No, I don't have more shit to go on. I was in my 20s, like... Could have time for this PhD yeah. malarkey, you know, the, the undergraduate, then did the masters. Then that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I just thought, yeah. I, don't, I don't have time do- for this. Doctor Mac Williams. I don't have time for this now. I've got other stuff to do. I want to travel the world. I want to see the world. I want to yeah. make a few quid. I want to live outside of Ireland. I want to go and you know. So there is. I mean, I'm not, I'm not again PhDs at all, right? But what she was making the point was that the pool from which policy economists and academic economists are plucked. Mm is a rather unusual one, and it's not representative of the society. Yeah. So we're going back to what Andy Haldane, the chief economist exactly, of the Bank yeah. of England, said is, yeah. I go to the pub, I talk to people. Yeah. I figure, I go to Sunderland FC, what are the people thinking? What is the everyday economy? What is the everyday lived reality of people? The walkabout economics the walkabout that economics, you talk right? about, yeah. And, you know, what the interesting thing is, Biden understands that he now has the permission to be courageous. And in a way, he's much more liberated than Obama because Obama was always thinking, if I screw this up, I screw this up for African-Americans for a generation or two. Because if my presidency is not successful, they will say, look what happened when we gave them the opportunity, right? So I think Obama's much more complicated. Biden is thinking, I have a Great Depression on my hands. What do I do? I go back to history. What did FDR do in 1930s? I'm going to do something similar. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting phrase he used, that Biden employing the economics of the 1930s to avoid another 1930s. That's exactly what's going on, yeah. right? So what Biden realises is that if we don't increase the opportunity of the average American, we are going to make the same mistake 
as Obama made, which is that the economy looks good. Yeah. You know, the, the headline figures look okay, but the lived reality of your average American is still not atrocious, obviously, but it's still incredibly difficult for them to make ends yeah. meet. So what they're doing, John, we are seeing now the biggest change in American economic policy since the United States left the gold standard at the end of the Bretton Woods in oh, 1972. Really? It's huge. Really? Wow. People don't appreciate what he's doing, right? Yeah. By the end. So this this is a relief package, right? This first yeah. one. The second one's going to be an infrastructure package, right? We could be talking up to 20% of American GDP is going to be spent by the federal government. It's huge. Like, wow. It could be $4 trillion. The American economy is a $20 trillion economy. But, 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 but hold on a second. Like, you know, there is talk of, you know, this is all great, this helicopter money, this chopper cash. Hey, <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were talking about chopper cash before anybody, and now they're doing it. But with this level of cash in the economy now. People are genuinely concerned about inflation and yeah. what it does to the dollar. Yeah, they Does are. the do dollar become meaningless after well, a while? Well, I mean, again, let's, let's go back. So let's go back to the 70s, John, and look at three periods of American economic policy. 1970 to 1980, mm -hmm. 1980 to 2020, and 2021 onwards, okay? Right. So the 70s is a period of inflation. Right, And the reason it's a period of inflation, some people would say, is because the Americans left the gold standard. So basically what the Americans said is, we will tie the dollar to gold. Yeah. They said this in 1948 yeah. at the Bretton Woods Conference. And then the rest of the world will tie their currency to the dollar. Mm. So in effect, it was a gold standard in all but name. Tricky Dicky Nixon, Tricky Dicky has to fight the Vietnam War. Yeah. Tricky Dicky can't fight the Vietnam War on the gold standard because he's got to print money to pay the troops. But there was also the oil crisis in 74. So, so 74. So Tricky Dicky in, in 68, 69, 70. It's Johnson right, okay. and, and, and Nixon. And they said, well, we're not going to be constrained on how much money we spend on our military by some notion of being attached to gold, mm. which, after all, as Keynes said, was a barbarous relic. Because gold... <laughs> There's only a fixed supply. Yeah. So they come off the gold standard, right? And of course, the Europeans were really, really worried about this. But the American, there's a great expression, Tricky Dicky's treasury secretary, a guy called Connolly, one of our own. Yeah. Uh, when de Gaulle was upset about the dollar, he said, the dollar is our currency, but your problem, <laughs> which is a great <laughs> expression. Anyway, 70s, you get the oil crisis. Massive, massive, massive shock. Oil prices go up, cost of everything goes up. You get what they call cost push inflation. And suddenly all bets are off. You get high, not hyperinflation, but very high levels of, yeah. of inflation. This then animates a certain part of economics, the monetarists under Milton Friedman. Yeah. One of his disciples is a guy called Paul Vocker, the six foot eight head of the Federal Reserve. Six foot eight, was yeah, he? Enormous fella. Was he a basketball player? I, I don't know. I don't know. White <laughs> men can't jump, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't have he to jump. Have to. <laughs> exactly. So he comes in, and, and here's the second phase. So the first phase is sort of the, the 70s. They're all over the place. They're not really sure what to do. 80s comes in. Vocker says, okay, our explicit idea is to destroy inflation. And the United States raises interest rates to 20%. Imagine that. 
Wow. Contracts the economy, precipitates a recession. This is in the first Reagan government. So the, Reagan gets in in 1979, 1980. So the first two years of Reagan's yeah. reign are disastrous, right? They precipitate a recession in order to squeeze inflation out of the system. But all the economists who were kind of undergraduates in the 70s or graduates and professors in the 70s come to the table with this obsession about inflation, right? And economic policy in the United States since the 1980s has been obsessed by driving down inflation. Now, the problem with driving down inflation is the following. Inflation is by and large wages. So driving down inflation also means driving down wages. Okay, right. So the average wage of the average worker in the United States in real terms has been squeezed since the early 1980s. Right. But the problem, the other problem is that if you have low inflation and decent levels of output, the split between profits and wages goes much more to profits. That's the way the world works. So basically, if you produce any good... Basically, what happens is you've got the return to the worker and the return to the capitalist, yeah. to use the old Marxist expression. If you're squeezing down wages to drive out inflation, by definition, you're expanding profits. This is why we've had a stock market boom, in effect, since 1980. We've had a bond market boom, in effect, since 1980. So the people who depend on dividends and capital gains for their income have seen their incomes rise, but the people who depend on wages for their income have seen their income fall. It's been squeezed. And it's all manifest in huge levels of inequality. That's the end result. Biden is thinking, okay, we need to reverse this. So we've had 40 years of Well, I was going to say, is is there a, a middle ground? Yes. Okay, come on, explain that one to me then. So the wages of inequality were manifest in the 2008 crash because the 2008 crash was caused by the banking system, which is the epicentre of inequality because rich people have good relations with banks and poor people don't as a general rule. And the reason is very, very simple. That, you know, this this idea that if you owe the bank 10 grand, it's your problem. If you owe them a million, it's their problem. So the richer guys have the banks by the balls always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... In 2008, we should have had this Biden-esque expansion, but Obama got nervous. Right. And not only did he get nervous, but by focusing on interest rates falling, he amplified the inequality. That sets the scene for our friend Donald Trump, yours and mine, who gets in on the back of inequality, on the poor, white, working-class guy doesn't have the lifestyle he had in the 50s and 60s that his dad had. Yeah, the golden age. And I'm going to fix that for you. He doesn't fix it. He fixes it for himself and his mates, right? So Biden comes in, and it's interesting. Joe Biden never, ever displayed any hint of radical economics. And yet now, at the age of 79, I think, he is deploying the economics that a much younger man would do. And I think this is really interesting. So he's dispensed with all the advice of the people who say this will be inflationary and he's going for it because I think what he thinks is that as long as he is president, if he can be the guy who brings back prosperity to the average American, Mm. well, isn't that great? So then you think, okay, what's he doing? So this bit now is relief. It's like famine relief, right? It's, It's like pandemic relief. The next bit he's going to try to do is increase American infrastructure. Now, I don't know if you've ever 
recently flown in before this pandemic to JFK. It's Not like, in a while. I tell you, it's like, do you remember there was an airport called Tempelhof, which was the airport in Berlin where the Berlin airlift was out of. Right. It feels like that, right? Right, right. Okay, and you, you've always got the same sort of little little fellas in the tower. Like, it looks yeah. it looks like a Graham Greene novel, right? And you've got people shouting at you in the immigration booths, and it's it's just ancient, right? Yeah, yeah. Everything about's decrepit. They need a new airport. And then you get on this bloody monorail to get on the Long Island Railroad, right? right. Which goes in, I think it's into Penn Station. Right, okay. okay? I think I was on that once. And that was probably 30 it's years shocking. ago. It's right. shocking. Like it is actually, it's like, it's, it really is like being in last century's infrastructure. Yeah. The Americans need to change. They need, you ever go on their, their, on their, on their, their expressways? Yeah. You know, the, the, the motorways. Yeah. And they're yeah, all like, yeah. they're all bits, they're like Lego bits together, That's right? That's right, they are. They are, you know. Yeah, yeah. So everything's like, I, I have to say, that I, I find a lot of America is, it just feels old. It is old because yeah. I haven't spent, now, do you know why? Because since 1980, they haven't been spending money. They've right. been squeezing the system and giving the money to rich guys. Right. And the yeah, rich yeah. guys don't use the expressway. You won't see them on the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> you will not see them on that. You'll see on them the railroad. On the railroad. <laughs> What's what the was? You won't see them on the Long Island Railroad. You'll see them in their helicopters over Manhattan. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So America needs to change. And I think it will. Now, the question is, inflation, does it come through? Americans will be so lucky if they had a little bit of inflation. They need a little bit of inflation. Right to get wages right. up, to yeah. get that sense yeah, of dynamism yeah. up. Yeah. So it's a it is an experiment, John. Lots of things are up in the air. The bond market doesn't think inflation's coming through. Right. The Federal Reserve doesn't think inflation's coming through. Claudia doesn't think inflation's coming through. Who knows? So that John is known as a crowded trade. Okay, Ooh. in the market. Okay. Right. When everyone's back in one horse. So maybe the smart money now backs the other horse. And maybe it is an inflationary issue. And maybe that's coming through. Is the idea of economics being counterintuitive? Being counterintuitive. When the whole market is over in one way, you want to be in the other bar. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon email in I will answer your question but more importantly it's ad free just you and me and your man across the way hey patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams and let's figure out the world together 